This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. We all lead lives haunted by past events and imagined threats. Kathleen Jennings, in her book Fly Away, delves into those things that haunt people in a country town that is the stuff of a storybook fairy tale and fiendish nightmare. So, Kathleen, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Now, your book is almost fantasy. You set that tone in your opening once somewhere between the Coral Sea and the Indian Ocean, but on the way to nowhere, there was a district. Oh, let's call it Ingleville. You then go on to describe what one would recognise as a country town in Australia, the memorials, the grocery store. What's the allure of such a setting? Part of the allure of it was the fact that I grew up in a country town and to me it was just the most beautiful location, partly because I was getting mostly European, a few American stories and a lot of fantasy at the time, but that was the only visual vocabulary I had to process my idea of fantasy. But also it was a genuinely lovely area and I didn't see it reflected in a lot of the Australian books I was reading, which to be fair was a lot of you know, strange objects and Ash Wednesday bushfire novels. But still there's that sense in Australian literature of the dead red heart and sort of decaying civilization and everything. And that didn't reflect the landscape that I saw. And I do need to stress that's definitely separate from a lot of the histories and current events in Australia. But the landscape itself was so beautiful. And when I was working on Flyaway, I wanted to capture that. And I wanted to see if I could get away with going full fairy tale right at the beginning. But the way I did it was actually through two of my favourite beginnings of stories, and one of which is uh, Charles Dickens, Our Mutual Friend, which starts in these present times of ours, although about the precise year there's, or about the exact year there's no need to be precise, and goes on. And the other's actually from Henry Lawson's story, The Ghostly Door, which has the line that these events are happening, I think they were fencing somewhere between here and Perth. And I just loved the vagueness of that opening. And I thought, oh, that's the perfect way to, to get away with a fairy tale start to something that I did want to have a very specific location feeling to it the town in this story has a past but also then it's populated with all sorts of characters but we first meet bettina scott our central character who has an intriguing relationship with her mother we are pleasant together aren't we bettina my mother would say and i would answer yes bettina seems to be trying to maintain appearances yes you always see a lot more of your neighbours' appearances. I, I don't think it's necessarily a good or a bad thing, but when you only have so many neighbours, whether they're just over the fence or 15 minutes drive or further to the next property, you can't help knowing that people know what you're doing. And also there's just a lot of stories that I enjoy which are very much about appearances. And my father was an army officer and my mother had opinions on what was correct. <laughs> in a household full of girls. And as far as I know, there's a lot of marching songs that I only know the opening two lines, the opening two words to, and the rest of the first line, as far as I know, goes, Mark, I'm trying to raise ladies. So although my mother was nothing like Bettina Scott's mother, a little bit of that is a nod to the way she tried to raise us. Behind that facade, then, we have Bettina going out one day and finding the word monsters. 
scrawled on her front fence. There's something not quite right in this town of Runnergate where they live. What's going on? I, I love that sense of there's something going on just behind the worlds that you can see, which I think is common to, though Bettina's not a child, she's a young woman, but it is very common to that experience of childhood, the, the sense that there's something going on just beyond what you can see and there's stories which aren't for you yet, but you accidentally watch evil angels around a doorway or something when you're young and you're like, oh no, there's things out in the trees that can get you. And... I wanted to capture uh, a sense of that. Perhaps the facade is not just an empty facade. Perhaps the facade is a face on things that are very real and visceral. Well, that facade is then accentuated by the fact that there is this one central narrative. Bettina is actually looking for her father and two brothers uh, who have suspiciously disappeared. But parallel to that central narrative are a series of stories, some of which take on a mythic proportion. So there's Linda's story. She's on the way to visit her foster grandmother. In other words, she's on the way to grandma's house and she meets a dog. I I really like that sense of walking through the trees and you meet something on the way or you're walking on the path. And if you step off it, you could meet something and is that a threat or is that a promise? All those possibilities. A lot of that story as well was trying to capture a little bit of my affection for the way the Australian landscape came through in Judith Wright's poetry too. And there's a line about lean, clean, hungry country full of old stories that go walking in my sleep from one of Judith Wright's poems. And that sense of old stories that go walking in your sleep was another aspect that I wanted to capture. And also having that recognisable beginning to a story, that sense that at some point someone will go, oh, she's on the way to grandmother's house, is a lovely way to trigger or pull in a lot of the echoes of fairy tales that people have in their heads or in the back of their minds. If they don't, I think the story will work because it's not a straight up retelling or reinvention of Little Red Riding Hood, that particular chapter but I wanted to pull on those particular strings. And there's a few other, there's a few other folk tales that show up in the bones of that chapter as well. I'm a big fan of the Ballad of Tam Lin and a lot of books that are based on that and things that play with questions of both transformation and loyalty. But also then, there's this echoes all the way through. There's Gary's story, there's Vi's story, there's Gwenda's story, and you touch on things like the Pied Piper or Jack and the Beanstalk. Now, interestingly enough, you've talked about the Australian landscape and yet these are European folk tales. Definitely, yes. I think that's just a function of me growing up on European folk tales in an Australian landscape. I find folk tales and fairy tales because I'm so familiar with them. I study them, I illustrate books based on them, I love the genres that are inspired by them. Because of all of that, they do come through in my stories and I find them a great template to use when I'm breaking down ideas. Again, I didn't want to do straight up retellings, but it's inevitable that those elements would come through. The other thing that I am a particular fan of fairy tales is the way they interact with different landscapes. And the first time I went to Germany and got to the Black Forest, I remember looking at the trees and going, 
oh, the, all these fairy tales said here make so much more sense now. And going to parts of England where certain stories are from, you're like, oh, I thought this was just a folk tale with you know, archetypal, wide-ranging roots. You're like, no, it's actually about this specific farmhouse and this specific block of land. And then going to, I went to Iceland, because I'm an illustrator, and I went to Iceland on an illustration residency, and looking around at a place which, although it has a longer European history than Australia, has a much shorter human history. It has no human history at all before 800 AD. And seeing the effect of looking at a landscape that didn't have any layer of stories on it. And then bringing that back to Australia and appreciating that my stories are very much introduced species. But so much of fairy tales are about things that aren't where they belong or that aren't looking like what they should or that have taken over or transformed or grown out of control. And especially growing up in the country, in Western Queensland, you're just very aware of you know, Lantana or Prickly Pear particularly, which laid waste to huge swathes of the country out there. And although I do use aspects of those sort of introduced plant species in the story, I thought the fairy tale elements themselves were such a wonderful way to deal with things that aren't where they should be, growing in ways they weren't designed to, wreaking havoc on a landscape that they're not native to. But it adds a dimension of folklore, myth, the secrets that are behind the facade we talked about earlier, which gets us back then to the central story, which is uh, Bettina looking for her brothers and trying to find out what happened to her father. How much of that central story can you reveal without giving the ending away? that central through line is tied to a story that I'm particularly fond of, which is the fairy tale of the seven ravens. And in fact, Bettina's name is from the translation of that I first read. The main character's name is Bettina, which is about a girl who has to go looking for a family. And there's so much emphasis in people's casual discussion of fairy tales on the romance aspect and happily ever after in the way that that follows after a wedding. And so many fairy tales are about people who did not ask to be given a difficult task, rolling up their sleeves and doing it anyway. And people go, oh, you know, girls should rescue themselves and not wait for a prince. And I was like, how many fairy tales do girls ever get rescued by a prince in? They're always like, even Rapunzel, she has to go off and rescue the prince again at the end. And uh, Kelly Link has a short story with the line, fairy tales are hard on the feet. And I think that is why the central through line became kind of a road trip story. The, the book basically ends on shadows flipped and whisper through the trees. And it seems to echo that notion that, yes, behind the facade, there's something going on. But even within a isolated country town in Australia, there are a lot of backstories that sort of take on a mythic proportion. You know, the old lady that might have a past, somebody who's disappeared and they've never found out the meaning. So when we go into a country town, perhaps we need to look at it differently in the end. Is that part of what you were after? It's definitely something I'd love people to do. There's such beauty there. And yes, there's terrible things. And even so many of the terrible things are ultimately so very human 
or come from human causes. And being out in a small town where the gardens are planted a particular way, but who knows what's buried under them, or you go into the church hall and there's light coming through the broken roof and pigeons in there. There's a beauty there that I didn't often see reflected in the stories that I grew up with. And I would love people to go into country towns wondering, is there more out there? Are there things in the trees that I can't trust? Are there stories that I ought to know, but no one ever told me beyond the stories that are comforting to hear? To find out what actually happens then in Kathleen Jennings' story, the listener and reader are going to have to uh, look for themselves. It's uh, darker than what you think. The book is Fly Away, the author Kathleen Jennings, and it's a Pan Macmillan release. So, Kathleen, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. In these unusual times, we are often reminded about our mental health. But what does that look like? We see it through one of the characters in Eva Ramsey's The Morbids. Welcome, Eva. Hello, nice to be here. I know you should never judge a book by its cover, but this cover is very impressive. Can you describe it? I think it's beautiful. It is a pink and glittery and the words the morbids are cut out of it and behind that is an old vintage postcard of a beach with the the beautiful very 70s palm trees and suntanned bodies and and that kind of thing and it's I I, every time I look at it I'm quite overwhelmed it's by a um, I think a Melbourne designer called Laura Thomas. It just looks startling and the pink glitter at the front. Now, pink glitter, we often associate with fun and a party, but I'm going to get Eva Ramsey to read the first part of her book. August, once. There was glitter in my hair. When I moved, it sparkled, fell onto my lap, my hands, stung. There was glitter and silence, so loud it hurt my ears, and a smell I knew but couldn't place, hot, rusty, sour. Hey, I said, are you okay? Nobody answered. I looked down. My neck hurt and at the corner of my eye I saw my hair, pink like fairy floss, full of glitter. Hey, I said again, louder. Still, nobody answered. There was just silence and glitter. So much glitter. So bloody quiet. This glitter, of course, is shattered glass from an accident. And it causes Caitlin to have mental health problems. She knows she's got these problems or she calls them thoughts. So each Tuesday night, she goes to a group therapy. The group is a, they're nicknamed the Morbids, which is where the name of the book comes from. And it's a group for, for people who have anxiety and specifically anxiety around death and dying. And so all of the, the characters in the group have their own little anxieties about death, quite specific. There's, Jeff, who's very afraid of household accidents, you know, he's worried about the the dryer falling off the wall and and things like that. And then Franny, who is convinced that she's got cancer and a couple of, and a few other characters who have their own little fixations around death and they get together every Tuesday night. It's theoretically, it's meant to be sort of led by a mental health professional, but the group's sort of taken on a bit of a life of its own and maybe not the healthiest in a way, but... You know, they they think they're 
treating each other's anxieties, but they, they are kind of feeding them, I think, at times. This is a quote from the book. I think about dying all the time, mugged, murdered, car accident, plane crash, train derailment, loose railing, dodgy stove, all the time, all the things trying to kill me. I couldn't stop thinking about them. Caitlin, she devises ways to cope. And first of all, it's that horrible flat that she's living in. Give us a description of that. Uh, So she lives in a little flat on King Street in Newtown in Sydney, which is where I lived for a brief period in my 20s. And it's, it's, it's your very typical flat above a shop where the, the paint is coming off the ceiling in sheets. It's, it looks out onto King Street, so it's really noisy because the glass, the panes are not sealed properly. So she's got the buses going past and the trucks going past and, you know, everything is very sort of smoggy. And I hope thing. your flat didn't smell like that either. No, it didn't. Yes, we, Caitlin refers to her, the flat as the cat piss house, which is a, um, a name for it that's been passed on through sort of the generations of flatmates that have lived there. And it's... <laughs> so <laughs> it's a good excuse not to invite people to her home, mm. to where she's... Yeah. But she also uses the noise in the street as an excuse that she can't sleep and she doesn't sleep well. So what does she do instead of sleep? A lot of the time she'll just sort of lie there and listen to the noise and she will try and sleep, but she, you know, she'll be counting the trucks and the buses and she knows all their rhythms. You know, she knows that at 4.30 this truck goes past and and that, and then she'll get up. She, you know, opens the window. She's a big smoker, so she'll roll herself a cigarette and sit out there. And, and I mean, other nights she, she works in hospitality, so she's working in the evenings. And instead of going home after work, what she will do is she'll just walk the streets, which is quite funny because one of her fears is, being mugged and murdered but it you know she finds it as a way of controlling her fear as to she thinks if she's facing it in that way you know she's putting herself in that path of danger um she's she's dealing with it and of course she's pushing away her family and her best friend lena but relationships let's you mentioned that she works in hospitality she actually works at a very very upmarket restaurant called Sawyer's and as she says it's designed to impress to intimidate and it did she meets the chef there let's hear from page 19 about Dex the chef Dex wasn't my type he was obnoxious and condescending and sometimes he quoted obscure radiohead lyrics in the middle of conversations as though that made him an intellectual and he had a steady stream of fangirls who'd sit at the end of the bar and wait for him to finish his shift They were all wide-eyed and fine-featured and looked much too young for him. Or maybe he was more my type than I wanted to admit. Overconfident and cocksure and spoiled. And when he pulled me into a doorway after a long night of drinking and kissed me against a stranger's letterbox, I let him and I let him take me home. Mm. So, relationship, maybe not so flat. (laughs) Uh, She's coping by working methodically and mindlessly, drinking hard and walking endlessly instead of sleeping. And she's Mm. not conversing with her best friend, Lena. And Lena needs to tell her something. And she chooses a very, very different way to do this, but it's a way that Lena and Caitlin have always communicated. And what's that? Uh, Lena, so Lena sends her a postcard, which, so she tells her that she is getting married um, and she's tried to do it. She's been ringing her and Caitlin has not been responding. Miss Caitlin is very much, you know, neglecting, I guess, that, that friendship a little bit for reasons that we sort of get into in the book. But the two have always 
despite never really traveling, they've always sent each other postcards. Um, and it's just a way that they communicate something that Caitlin started when they were teenagers, um, when Lena was having a really hard time. And it, it's this, this thing that runs through the book that Caitlin is sort of, she's, she gets lost in those postcards quite a bit. She sort of looks back at them and, and of course it fits in with the postcard at the front of the book and the cover mm. of the book, these old postcards. Well, this invitation to Caitlin to come to the wedding. Caitlin can't tell her best friend. She just can't do it. She can't go to the wedding in Bali. There is a person that she does meet that she can talk to and it's a regular at the restaurant. It's Tom. Even Ramsey, can you read to us from page 100 about Tom? When he came back from the bar, he slid into the seat like we were old friends. We talked about terrible TV shows and movies we'd wanted to see and where we grew up. He had a younger sister who just had a baby and he showed me pictures and it felt nice, warm and normal. He was normal, I realised, hyper normal. He had impeccable manners and impeccable teeth and he looked like he belonged on a postcard sitting outside a cafe in Paris or standing on a bluff in San Francisco or walking down a cobblestone street in Prague. So normal he was hardly real, a hologram from some other world who'd ended up in mind by mistake. He listened to me properly, eyes on me or half closed, thoughtful, nodding as I spoke, even if I was just telling him how Lena and I used to get dressed up to watch the OC together. <laughs> it just seems too good to be true. And oh, yeah. Caitlin's confidence in him is shattered when she sees a photo hop of him with a past girlfriend. It's not so much the two of them together, but rather the location of the photo. So where mm. was that? So they were in New York, which is a place that Caitlin has always wanted to visit. It's her, I mean, Caitlin, before her accident was, was driven by, she really wanted to travel. Like that was sort of the one thing that she really, really wanted to do. And she wanted to do it with Lena and that sort of didn't eventuate. And she's really held it close to her and she doesn't talk about it at all. So as her and Tom get closer, they do start talking about travel, but even to him, she can't talk about New York as a place that she wants to go. And then she's in his flat one day and she sees this photo of him with his ex-girlfriend standing with the Empire State Building in the background and it just completely shatters her confidence, even though he doesn't know that he's done anything wrong, they've never discussed this. He's never hidden it, but, but it, yeah, it really shakes her and it makes her feel really insecure and a bit in the relationship and brings up a lot of her own um, worries that she's already had and that have sort of been festering under the surface. So this calls Caitlin to withdraw again from everybody in a way to protect yeah. herself. So what happens next? Well, that's part of the story. And <laughs> I must say, if I wasn't so drawn into the character, we wouldn't care. But it's yeah. the sensitivity that Eva, you've used to describe her anxieties and her panic attacks that makes us care so much. So how did you do this? You know, was it research? I have a lot of anxiety myself. I've, it's, it's something that I've struggled off for most of my life on and off well sometimes, less well other times. So a lot of it was drawing on that. I was only, only really started getting a good amount of help for it a few years ago. So for the bulk of my 20s, it was something that I was dealing with and didn't really have the words for. So I could really relate to Caitlin being in that position of knowing that the way she's feeling isn't right, but not really 
knowing how to reach out and get help. So I think that that, that is the biggest thing. And, and obviously writing from experience means that it is going to feel very genuine. And I, and I hope that it does feel genuine to other people who've been there with it as well. Now, Caitlin had always refused to tell anybody how much she was affected by what happened. Mm. Her parents knew nothing of the accident. They expected the worst, that she may have been on drugs. <laughs> she, she was very successful with cutting her best friend Lena out of her life. Would you mind if we went back to your book, page 84? Not long after the accident, I told Lena about the thoughts. I told her that I'd kept feeling like I was going to die, that I was convinced of it, and some days it was like I couldn't breathe because all I could think about was how it would feel. She looked at me with the strangest, saddest expression. God, Kate, she'd said, you can't think like that, as though I could just stop. Lena asked about the thoughts a few months later, and I told her they'd passed. Good, she said, then changed the subject. The next time she texted, I told her I was busy. I was suddenly busy more and more, and it felt like it was better that way for both of us, easier, safer. Yeah. Oh, what a what a wonderful friend that that Lena was. No, they're, they're to each other really, wasn't it? It was a shared friendship that they both looked after each other in need. In a way, I think that that is one of the reasons that Caitlin really struggled with it because when they were teenagers, Lena had a, a really tough time of it, and Caitlin was the one that looked after her. And then when Caitlin is the one that needs help. She's almost uncomfortable playing that role. She's cast herself as the protector. So, you know, I, I loved exploring the way that those female friendships, the long-term ones, and you've got, you, you know everything about each other and that is really amazing, but can be a bit of a double-edged sword and can make some things harder. And I just loved playing with that conflict and having them bring them together to sort of resolve it. In the end. Workmates, Nick, her boss. He was a mm. chap, wasn't he? In, in complete contrast to Dex, the uh, the chef. Shall we yeah, say. You, you've got yeah. You, you've got some lovely, lovely characters through this book, you know, and you just sort of feel confident with Caitlin towards the end that she's going to be okay. Mm, I hope so. I think Nick is finally he's the only person in the book that is based on a real person. Everyone else is is much more fictional or else a pastiche of lots of different people. Whereas Nick has one very definite person, that I, an old boss that I used to work with when I waitressed myself. And, and so it was really easy to write him because I just remember the way my old boss used to speak and his mannerisms and everything like that. And so Nick, he's one of my favorite characters because he just came out as this fully formed. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned before that uh, Caitlin was a uh, very heavy smoker. And mm. I have a feeling that uh, some of her smoking skills, you've written so well that you might have also rolled your own cigarettes. I loved rolling my own cigarettes. I quit smoking, oh God, 17 years ago, a long time ago. Um, and that is more than smoking. The thing I miss is rolling my own cigarettes. <laughs> I, I best if I'm out for a night and someone has rollies I'm always like can I roll you a cigarette and it's it, I love the ritual of it I think it's just it's something so like I, I guess I'm a fiddler at the best of times but it is that wonderful thing you do with your hands and 
um, so tactile. And yeah, Caitlin, it, it, it's definitely something that comes from my own experience. And I well, Eva Ramsey's book, The Morbids, is an uplifting book about anxiety, the depth of friendship, and how different friends and a variety of strategies can help in hurtful situations. Thank you very much, Eva. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.